Barefooting with Sierra uses Buzzsprout. Just start with the equipment you already have and a quiet space. Add Buzzsprout and your podcast is ready to go. You'll get a great looking podcast website, audio players that you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to show how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and more. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners. Following the link in the show notes lets Buzzsprout know that I sent you, gets you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan, and helps support the show. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout and get your message out to the world. Hello and welcome to the 15th episode of Barefooting with Sierra. My name is Sierra Larson, better known as Barefoot Sierra. I'm a novelist, comic creator, and independent journalist, and I've been living without shoes since 2010. I created this podcast to keep my audiences in touch with all of my projects, to talk about things I care about, and to interact with the awesome people in my various professional networks. In this episode, I interviewed Barefoot Jake Brown. I'm going to break this podcast up into four parts, novels, comics, journalism, and barefooting, each representing a different aspect of my professional life. I will give you updates on what I am working on, let you know about any new works you can see, and keep you in the know about when I do free book giveaways on Amazon. Let's get started. First up, novels. I'm still going strong on that first draft of my antebellum romance. I'm probably two chapters away from having the main couple get married in the chronological first draft that I'm writing, and then I will write about their life together after marriage as part of their romance. When I go back to do the rewrite, I need to have that kind of reference. I've had test readers tell me that my timelines make no sense in previous novels, and this is the way I've found to solve that. My first draft is chronological, and then I can throw in flashbacks when I do the rewrite because I already have the timeline mapped out. Today's the last day my novel Red 72 Exodus is available as a free ebook on Amazon. Make sure you grab it while it's free. This is the third book in my Red 72 series, and it will make more sense if you have read Red 72 and Red 72 Genesis before you start this one, but it functions well enough as a standalone that you don't absolutely have to have read those for it to work. In novel news today, Nova Scotia has elected Ian Rankin, spelled I-A-I-N, as the new premier of the province. People on Twitter are being, well, people on Twitter, and making jokes with Scottish novelist Ian Rankin, spelled I-A-N, about what he will do as premier. He said his first act as premier would be to nationalize Tim Hortons, or at least their sausage biscuits. Ian Rankin is best known for his Inspector Rebus novels. In an essay on Salon.com, Jacques Berlinblau examined all of Philip Roth's novels and short stories for ethnic tone. Roth is one of the authors who's credited with changing how America writes about racism in fiction, but a lot of his books and short stories have racist elements. Berliner Blau examined themes of dehumanizing African Americans and use of ethnic slurs, even in books that are set in a time when that would not have been common or accepted for people to do so. A link to the full essay is in the show notes. Now on to comics. Today's comic was inspired by a post by Possum Mood. They were dealing with a major panic attack and made a comic about it, and it really resonated with me, so I did a draw-this-in-your-style thing and did a tribute comic of Possum Pete also struggling with anxiety. In comics news today, The Forever Maps from Scout Comics is getting developed into a movie by Lit Entertainment. The Forever Maps is a story of a man who has to choose between family and immortality and tries to answer the question, is it worth it to live forever? The Forever Maps is written by Michael Lagasse, and that is his first project. Illustrator Todor Ristoff has previously worked on the Stranger Things Halloween special. 
DC Comics is taking a step forward with diversity in comics. The next character to hold the Batman mantle, Tim Fox, is a well-known black character. Oscar-winning black writer John Ridley is writing the comic. He says the comic is less about the character's color and is more about a character who happens to be black and becomes Batman. Having diverse writers leads to diverse characters, and I am here for it. All right, next up is journalism. Every day in February, I'm highlighting one influential black history figure. Today's Black History Month highlight is Hattie McDaniel, the first African-American to win an Academy Award. Hattie McDaniel was born on the 10th of June, 1893 in Wichita, Kansas, the 13th child of Henry and Susan Holbert McDaniel. In 1901, the family moved to Denver. While in high school, Hattie began performing as a professional singer and dancer with the Mighty Minstrels. She dropped out of school in 1909 in order to focus on her career. She started writing her own blues songs and organized an all-women minstrel show. She was invited to perform on Denver's KOA radio show. After several years of taking odd jobs and performing wherever she could get hired, she managed to get a steady vocalist job at Sam Pick's Suburban Inn in Milwaukee in 1929. A year later, her brother Sam convinced her to move to L.A. to pursue a movie career after he landed a few minor movie roles and secured a regular role on a radio show there. Hattie joined her brother in California, guest starred on his radio show, and got her first role as a movie extra in 1931. In 1932, she was cast as a housekeeper in the Golden West. Roles for black women were hard to come by, and she continued to take odd jobs to make ends meet. Her first major role was as Aunt Dilsey in 1934's Judge Priest. From there, she was able to gain a steady stream of roles. Her most famous role is that of Mammy in 1939's Gone with the Wind. In 1940, she won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for this role. This was a major victory for someone who wasn't even permitted to attend the film's premiere at the segregated Lowe's Grand Theater in Atlanta. She received criticism from some other black people for taking stereotype roles of black servants, to which she replied, I'd rather play a maid than be one. Hattie retired with 98 acting credits to her name after suffering a heart attack in 1951. She died of breast cancer on the 26th of October, 1952. She has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, was inducted into the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame in 1975, and was commemorated on a U.S. postage stamp in 2006. In today's current events, Graceland Church in Parkland, Alberta, which was ordered to immediately shut down back in January, and fined for violating public health mandates for church services being limited to 15% building capacity, doesn't seem to care. They violated public health orders again yesterday. Signs in the parking lot read, Churches are essential. The provincial court has now issued a court order requiring them to shut down. Police responded to the nearly at-capacity service, which was deemed a public health risk, and issued an additional fine. The church issued a statement which reads in part, We believe love for our neighbor demands that we exercise our civil liberties. We do not see our actions as perpetuating the longevity of COVID-19, or any other virus that will inevitably come along. If anything, we see our actions as contributing to its end, the end of destructive lockdowns and the end of the attempt to institutionalize the debilitating fear of viral infections. The church also cited Times Alberta Premier Jason Kenney called COVID the flu as reason not to be afraid of it. The ironic thing is the people who refuse to follow lockdown orders are the reason we keep having to have lockdowns. And it's not like this church doesn't have the capability to live stream services. When two congregation members tested positive for COVID and the church had to shut down for two weeks while everyone quarantined, they did live streams. They could do it again. 
they just don't want to. Police in Thunder Bay, Ontario, are asking the public to help them find Jocelyn Munias, a missing 28-year-old Indigenous woman. Jocelyn was last seen on the morning of the 5th of February in the area of Cumming Street, Thunder Bay. She's 5 foot 3 inches tall, weighs about 120 pounds, has a medium complexion, brown eyes, and long black hair. She was last seen wearing a black jacket and black boots. Anyone with information of her whereabouts should contact Thunder Bay Police or Crime Stoppers. Last but not least, let's talk about barefooting. Yesterday was my last day of quarantine, so I'm finally able to go out and do stuff, but it's literally so cold that they closed schools, so I'll be wearing shoes for the next while. It's frostbite in minutes cold. And now for my interview with Barefoot Jake Brown. Hi, Jake. Thanks so much for joining me. Please tell the listeners about where you're from, what you do, and a little bit about yourself. Hi, um, I'm Jake. I call me Barefoot Jake because um, I wear really big steel-toed shoes when I run. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, Actually, uh, back in 2012, I read a book which a lot of you might be familiar with called Born to Run, and it inspired me to start playing around with barefoot running and minimalism in general, And that led to the better part of a decade of me living on the road, traveling the United States by foot and thumb. And I did it through the goodwill of neighbors and neighbors, sorry, strangers who picked me up off the side of the road or got me hotel rooms and meals or cheered me on through social media. Um, I met thousands of people from one coast to the other, got to run a few races, ran around a lot more without shoes on. I built a network around the story that eventually became the Bear Soul Project, which is a blog that I'm working on. These days, I live in Oregon. These days, I'm trying to make a lot of connections between cannabis and ultra-distance running, all tied in with my minimalist roots. And that's kind of where I'm at these days. Good stuff. And how did you first get into distance running? Kind of, well, how do I put it? (laughs) When I decide I want to do something, I tend to take it to the extreme. (laughs) And if somebody tells me that I can't or shouldn't do something that I know I can do, well, that makes me want to do it that much harder. (laughs) So people were, you know, questioning the whole barefoot thing. And, oh, well, that's cute. That's a cute little hobby, kid. Like, you must be running your mile, maybe. What kind of shoes do you carry with you when you do that? And it just, it really bugged me. So I was like, screw you guys. I'm going to run literally 10 times as far as you with no shoes on <laughs> and that, that that's kind of how I got into the ultra running to begin with was a big chip on my shoulder but then I realized that I liked it and eventually it became like literally my therapy so at this point if I'm feeling black dogs circling around me if I'm feeling anxious depressed you know sad or really happy I go for a run so it started out as like an ego trip and it turned into the greatest thing that I've ever done for myself that's awesome and then you mentioned the Bear Soul Project. How did you come up with the idea to start that? It happened organically. To do what I was doing, because it was so unconventional, I couldn't get sponsors. So I was running like big ultra marathons, and I was, I was traveling around, and I had a social media following, but I was barefoot, and I had dreadlocks, and I was homeless. So nobody wanted to freaking sponsor that. That's totally, a, it seemed unmarketable. So I stopped trying to, to find, you know, sponsors and I started looking at the people around me and looking for resources that were already right in front of my face and that's what the bare soul project was originally was my support network but the thing is that every individual that was becoming a part of my story 
has their own story and their own background and their own network. And those networks were becoming a part of my own. You know, John Smith in Pennsylvania gives me a room for the night, tells his cousin down the road about me. Next thing you know, I'm crashing on their couch, meeting their friends and family. It just kept you know, rolling from there. So I, I labeled it the Bear Soul Project and started talking about the community and the network as its own thing because it just made sense. It was happening. And people were asking me, what's your project called? <laughs> Uh, and then after a while, I realized that it really was its own thing. And this last year, during the, the wildfires that happened uh, in the United States, all up and down the West Coast, Sarah, actually, myself and a few friends, we were able to use that network to raise thousands of dollars to help people in need who had been displaced by wildfires and needed temporary lodging and other resources. And that's what the Bear Soul Project, I hope, will be moving forward is the story of this ever-expanding network, this global community, and the conscious lifestyle we're trying to live, and making, making it a little bit easier to make connections and to see your place in the world and inspire people to help each other within it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so as you mentioned, the Bear Soul Project's first major relief effort was for people affected by the Holiday Farm Fire in Oregon. Can you talk a bit more about that and how you helped the evacuees? Absolutely. So I was hanging out in Springfield, Oregon, minding my own business, working on a website. And I, like I said, when I do things, I do it extreme. So I'd been like working on this stuff for almost two days straight, barely like looked out the window and decided I needed to stretch my legs, stepped outside and the whole world was like amber and glowing and everything was covered like smoke. Like there, there wasn't air, there was just smoke. It was the middle of the day and it, it looked like you know, the sun had already gone down. And I just like I just remember how surreal it was. And then I started looking at the news and they, they were talking about the fires coming closer and closer. You know, hundreds of people had already lost their homes and were displaced and headed towards Eugene. And I thought, well, that sounds dangerous and unpleasant. So I'm gonna get away from that. And so I did at first. I relocated to an, to the other side of the river, the Willamette River, and I stayed with another friend further away from the flames. And that night we were watching the news and this family came on. Porter was interviewing a family just on the move uh, and they were looking for their kid and they were fleeing from the fire and they were looking for their kid. And the kid wound up, turned up with his grandmother and they were both dead. And when I saw that, I saw all these people who were losing everything and well, just that they lost everything and like all that goes with it. I, I'm looking at myself, like I'm a single guy. I've got wildland firefighting experience. I'm a fit athlete. Um, I've got nothing to lose here. Like, why am I trying to get away from the danger when there are people who can't, you know, who aren't as conveniently prepared as I am, who are in trouble right now? So initially, I wanted to fight the fires themselves, having been a wildland firefighter, but I couldn't get on the fire lines because my credentials had expired. So I just went to the closest relief evacuation relief site that I could find. And I signed on and, and just offered to throw boxes around with everybody else. And the, the site was not organized by an organization. It was not organized by any big nonprofit. None of the actual effective relief sites in this area were organized by anybody other than locals who saw something that needed to be done. And so there was no money <laughs> involved. It was just whatever people were bringing to us. And we were getting lots of resources, lots of food and like 
you know, old clothes and stuff brought in, but people needed lodging. Like there was, there's, there's always food and clothes around, like go to any food pantry, go to any thrift shop, like you could take care of these people. What they needed was lodging, especially those who had medical conditions for elderly, small children, autistic kids, you know, displaced homeless people, you know, chronically homeless as they call them, who are just as put out as anybody else during the fire. So I got on the interwebs and started asking my, my friends and followers if they would donate. And some did. Some donated a lot. And Sierra and I started working together through the blog, the Verisol Project blog. And what we were doing was Sierra was blogging about the people, like the evacuees, and this, this broader story. And most importantly, in my opinion, resources. So she was researching, like if I saw a trend happening, like hey, there's a lot of autistic kids popping up, you know, in our forums. Like, can we research like resources for autistic people or you know, anything relevant to that elderly? Well, like what are resources that elderly people need? Uh, people are talking about the cars breaking down and choking because of the smoke. You know, what are mechanics that we can contact and you know, get discounts? Some of it panned out, some of it didn't. But we made really good use of a simple blog to engage and help people. And that was that was the collaborative effort there that really made everything happen, because otherwise it would have just been me sitting in a hotel room with a bunch of strangers around. <laughs> and we were able to we lodged in the end over 100 individuals. The site processed like 40 cases and we, uh, we were able to, uh, to cater to like dozens of them and we helped people. <laughs> there's still there's still stuff going on out here people are still displaced there's a lot of families living in temporary shelters some people you know went from living in their homes to being legit homeless now but the immediate danger has passed and we did a really good job you had the organizational skills from previous charitable projects that you've worked on a few years ago you did a barefoot run across the united states to raise money for disabled veterans could you tell us a bit about that sure so prior to that, I had some friends in the Marine Corps, and uh, one of them had stepped on an IED on his last patrol, and he, quote, got lucky, unquote, because only the, the primer went off, not the, the actual explosive charge, and it shattered all the bones in his foot, did a lot of damage, and, and the guy wound up needing support, or at least accepting support, from an organization called the Semper Fi Fund. And I was visiting him down in San Diego in uh, 2014, early 2014. He told me about them, and we were hanging out, and I was uh, trying to come up with something to do, something running related. And I was doing like these really long, like 500-mile training runs with a backpack and stuff. And one night, my buddy asked me, you know, hey, do you think you could do something so that like all this running and like the publicity that you're trying to get could like help us <laughs> this guy had never i had never seen this guy ask for help from anybody before but it was obviously really important not just for him but because he knew that there was a need for this organization to keep getting resources to keep helping these veterans and i said yes well what can i do and he says well you know the semper fi fund you could raise money for them and so that's what i did contacted them and signed on as an official fundraiser and then i ran across the country but why did i run across the country is a question i'm still trying to answer <laughs> i needed something to do and nobody had actually run across the entire continent completely barefoot before. Ray Ainsley Highmore's shoes. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> great, great job. But she wore shoes. <laughs> and yet Runner's World gave her credit. No hard feelings there whatsoever, obviously. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I mean, honestly, I needed something to do. Like I was on the road. I was, I was living this homeless, willfully homeless lifestyle and it was exciting and stuff, but it also got really boring. And the only way I could keep people following my story was to have a story. So I put 
this request for support for my injured friend together with the network that was already forming together with my need to do something. And there was a continent in front of me. Oh, last piece of information to or, uh, relevant to this and to plug a friend. When I was on the fence about running across the country, it was in I think August of 2014. And uh, I was like, you know what, this that sounds too hard. I'd rather chase the 24 hour barefoot record. You know, I think it was only 114 at the time. So that was within my actually at the time I was not ready for it. But now it's within my my grasp. And then this guy Andrew Snope comes along and he busts out 137 miles in 24 hours with no shoes on. And I looked at that number and realized I couldn't do that. So running across the country became easier. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember cussing him out and then sending him a message congratulating him and saying <laughs> I'd like to meet him. <laughs> Where can people find you online? Barefootjakebrown.com. That's that's the old website there. I use a social media page under the same name, Barefoot Jake Brown. From there, you can find the Bare Soul Project and any other projects that I might be working on at a given time. And I do love answering questions. People don't ask enough questions until they see me in person. And so then nobody else gets the benefit of that question and answer. <laughs> so I do encourage that if anybody listening has has questions for me or about running uh, minimalism travel, like please find me and, and shoot me a message. Well, thanks again for joining. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. And I consider you friend of the podcast as well as a friend in real life. It's um, you've been a part of my, my story since the beginning. <laughs> you were my first you, I did my first interview with you. You got it all kickstarted. So thank you. And thank you for what you're doing for the community and the world. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. You too. That's all for today's show. I'll be back tomorrow with another interview, this time with Jenna Larson, my cousin, to talk about life as a Trump supporter in Biden's America. Thanks so much for listening in. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to Sierra the Barefoot Girl at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at Sierra the Barefoot on Facebook as Sierra the Barefoot Girl, on Twitter at Sierra Barefoot, and on TikTok at Sierra is Barefoot. You can follow the podcast itself on Instagram at Barefooting with Sierra. All of my books are available on Amazon. My comics are available on Instagram at World of Possums and Patreon.com slash Possum Thank you to Legion X for the intro and outro music. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. And please share it with a friend if you've enjoyed it. Until next time, this has been Barefooting with Sierra.